What is the difference between history and future? When one lives in the present, are they aware of the ramifications their decisions have on the future? What is the difference between a choice and a decision? And does that difference matter to us? How can we see the value in our own choices when the decisions that are guided by them are controlled by others? These are just some of the questions that I, like so many other New Yorkers, are thinking about on this very historic day. The word historic generally has a positive connotation. However, today I'm afraid the connotation behind that word, historic, may have become negative. Today marks the second time in my life that I've been affiliated with an academic institution during a time of monumental and historic prominence. Because the event that occurred today, the overturning of the Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade, established in 1973 the precedent allowing a woman to choose what she can do with her own body. A privilege that any man takes for granted as a very basic right in terms of their own body has been rescinded. And yet the right that any man, every man, has to choose in terms of what they can do with their own body is going unturned. So similar to the pandemic in which, you know, it was really illustrated the disparities that our minorities have in terms of access to receiving adequate health care. Today, we see the same disparities between women and men. But if that truly is the case, then how come as a man, I have control to do whatever I want over my body. But if I were a woman, I would not be in the same circumstance. Is SCOTUS aware of the ramifications their actions have on the future of her country and consequently on the history that our future will see when they look back in hindsight? Are we aware of the impact our own choices can have on decisions that can really change policy and history for years to come? Is the fragility of hope within our clasps? The purpose of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution is to grant equal protection of the law. That includes equal protection for men, women, blacks, whites, and any other combination of factors that can create a human being in our society. Let's go to the source. Section 1 says, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens in the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Let's take a step back and figure out what actually this means in practice. I'm a man, someone else is a woman. I feel like getting a candy bar. So I go to the store, I take out a crisp $1 bill, I hand it to the guy behind the counter, or the woman behind the counter, they gave me the candy bar that I want, I leave the store, I go to the subway, and I eat the candy bar. In the subway, there's a woman, and someone hands her a candy bar. Now you might think, wow, this is really cool. Someone's handed her a candy bar for free. But unfortunately, the process the individual took in relaying her the candy bar was not free. It was lodged in between a seat and affected by the warmth. Now, let's say I'm not feeling as good about my own candy bar. Maybe I got a Kit Kat, but now I changed my mind, or I found a different option of M&Ms that fits my profile a little bit better. I can go to the same store, find the same person behind the counter, return them the candy bar, and get my dollar bill back, or I can use the candy bar that I purchased, return it, and demand or ask politely, rather, for an exchange. 
The guy behind the counter might look a little bit puzzled. After all, who returns food anymore? That being said, he understands that I paid him originally with the dollar bill for the candy bar. I'm not doing anything illegal. The one question the guy behind the counter might ask me is why? Why do you want to return the candy bar? Is there an issue with it? But what happens to the woman on the subway who was given a candy bar she didn't request? She never asked for that. What happens to her? When she tries to go to the store to return her candy bar, which she didn't want, the guy behind the counter says, this isn't the right place for this, and you have to go to a different store that's in a different state. And the question he poses to her is not, why do you want to return the candy bar? But rather, it's, what gives you the right, or what thinks that you have the right, to be able to return this candy bar in the state that you bought it? And of course, that's part of his question. He assumes that she bought it, not that someone else gave it to her, or the circumstances in which she was, you know, given this candy bar that she didn't want or asked for. And contrary to what you might think about the year in this situation, this hypothetical example, the year is not 1950, or whenever those candy bars were invented. It's actually 2022. The first historic moment I experienced when I was affiliated with an educational institution at the time, or an academic institution rather, was when I was at Duke uh, in January of 2017. Unfortunately, what it seems is that moment has impacted today's moment. So what does that say about where we are and how far allegedly we've come as a country? And in these situations, it's easy to resort to antagonism, which unfortunately is quite futile. In order to move forward, we need to work together and not against each other. We have to realize that our choices have consequences. And in making more informed choices, we're more likely to leave this country in a better place in which we found it, presumably. That being said, for many of us, moments like this can feel demoralizing. That's why it's important to use our own voice and voices to speak to the injustice that we see. When times are uncertain, look to an education. When opinions seem to speak louder than words, look to the objective data. And when rhetoric screams at you, attempting to get you to circumscribe to their own view, which may or may not represent how you truly feel, look inside your own mind and your own body and ask yourself the following question. Does what this person is saying about me or about someone else make me feel good about myself? Or is there a purpose clear and direct to mislead you? Exposure to education is the variable that dictates on which side you may fall. The degree to which you may subscribe to an us versus them mentality as opposed to a together one may directly impact how good you feel about yourself. But realizing the value of diversity of opinions is no easy task sometimes. Sometimes your own voices may speak louder than the open-minded dialogue encouraged by others for you to subscribe to. But in those situations, perhaps it makes more sense to look at others than inside yourself. That men and women were created equal is not necessarily a lesson that you learn in school. And when you witness the injustices committed against women, and today's example is, is illustrated by the protests that we're seeing across the country and across the world. You may realize that while a woman was created equal to man, they're not treated as such. So to the men listening, we have a responsibility ourselves to improve conditions for women living in our society today. We have to use our voice to shed light on the injustice that they face every single day across the world and across our country. Because if we don't, 
our role in society switches from allies to perpetrators. Today, the New York streets and subways are filled with despair. But what does tomorrow hold? That's up to you. Today's episode is about the films that truly impacted the way that I see the relationships among men and women, and particularly how women are treated in society. More aptly, it's about the directors who made the films that inspired me to think about how a woman must feel day to day, particularly in instances of oppression and repression. That's what today's episode is about. This is Director's Part 2. Unlike the Academy of Motion, Picture, Arts, and Sciences, or the Hollywood Foreign Press, I don't rate films. I can't make a list of the five most quote-unquote feminist films that have ever graced or presence because I can't pin one film against the other. To me, it wouldn't be right. Ultimately, isn't that subjugation, which is contrary to the topics that I've discussed so far? So when I bring up the films that really impacted me, more specifically the five films, I don't mean to rank them against each other or in reference to each other. I mean more aptly to create a collage of the films that inspired me in different ways to look more into what it must mean to live through a woman's lens. How must they feel every day? Because as a man, it took these films and the directors that shaped them and it took their own lenses to figure out how a woman must really feel. And that's ultimately what I think we're doing here today. All right, number five, which is equal to number one in this case, is The Kids Are Alright by Lisa Cholodenko. This film changed my life. I'll never forget the day that I saw it. I was in high school and uh, it was summer break and I just received my learner's permit probably a few months ago, but I still didn't possess a license. And it was one of those weeks when there was a car sitting uh, nearby in our driveway that no one was really using. And I thought it would be a great time to use it to drive myself to these SAT prep classes that I was taking at the time. So that's what I did that week. And I think it was Thursday or Friday. It was one of the last times that I went to that class. I drove it to downtown and I parked and I was really paranoid that someone was going to steal this car that I did not own that I took out really before asking anyone's permission either. But I was also pretty amped and intrigued at the fact that I actually did this and I was able to drive from one area of town to the other. So after class, I drove back and I went to this newly constructed fast food restaurant just a few blocks from my uh, my house my family's house. And immediately after that, going to that drive through I drove a few blocks the other direction to Blockbuster, which was still a crucial part of my life. It was right off of Murray Holiday Road in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I went in that Blockbuster like I had so many times prior to that, not knowing what I wanted to get. I wasn't super enamored with my SAT instructor, who was really a TA that didn't give us any points about studying for that test. That course was kind of a waste of money aside from some of the work they had us take home to to do to practice. So I walked in the Blockbuster and I still have my, you know, my blue Blockbuster card in my wallet just more as a sentimental thing. And I must have gone to the romance section. This film had already come out in theaters and it had probably been a couple of months and now it was on video. It was probably 20, 2009 or 2010, maybe 2010. This is before we saw movies simultaneously coming out in theaters as they did on video. 
And I prefer those times because there was some more value in, in knowing that what you can see, you can only see in one mode as opposed to two. So I saw the cover and it was Annette Benning and Julianne Moore. Mia Washikawa, Josh Hutchison, the kids and Mark Ruffalo may or may not have been on the cover. I don't remember that. But nonetheless, I was really intrigued and I had no idea what to expect. I saw this film about these, you know, two lesbians living in Pasadena, raising their kids together and seeing all of the shenanigans that they kind of got into with each other and also with their kids, especially when they started looking more fueled by Josh's character for their adoptive, uh, not their adoptive, but their donor, um, you know, father, their biological father, right? Whom they had never met prior to this seeking out event. I think one of the reasons this movie was so impactful for me was because of the college that Mia's character ultimately went to, which is Occidental, and that's a school that I had applied to as well. The last scene of the movie is the reason why it's on this list all these years later, right? 12 or 13 years later. Because that last scene fundamentally changed how I viewed movies and also how I think about making my own films, certainly in the writing process. So a few scenes prior, it's basically come to the realization that, you know, Julianne's character has had this affair with Marx, and that's threatening the viability and the survival, ultimately, of her relationship with Annette's character. That in itself was a really interesting moment in terms of how they, you know, how Lisa got closure in that third act, likely in the middle of it, which is when Marx's character shows up and he's totally inebriated, he shows up on this bike you know, this this motorcycle, and he just wants a relationship with Julianne's character because he saw her as uh, the secret confidant that he never had. Before his fascination with Julianne's character, Mark's character was in an affair with, you know, someone else that kind of worked with him, but it didn't yield the same type of relationship and the rewards coming out of that on, in some sense, as uh, Julianne, the relationship with her character did but the the moment that was so interesting proceeding to the moment that really sold me on this was when mark like i mentioned it you know rides his motorcycle to their house and he tries to get julianne really in that moment to come to some realization that he's really the guy for her and she does not need to think about her relationship with the nets character as much right but that's not the scene that that really got me. It's the end of that scene when after this sort of confrontation that Mark has had with, Mark's character rather, has had with Julianne and Annette's characters, mostly Annette's, he has come off the bike, you know, his, his motorcycle. Julianne kind of mouths him off a little bit, not verbally, but just in terms of an action. She, she kind of waves him off and, you know, implies that this is not the right time for this and he should you know, leave and get his own life, which is a sentiment that Annette echoes a little bit more, you know, strongly. When both of them go in, Julianne and Annette's character, they both, you know, those characters, they both walk into the house. Josh, his character, uh, comes to the window. He wants to see what this commotion is about, although he has an idea at this point. And Mark's character gives him this wince, this look, like, I'm your father. Like, you get this. Look at this issue that I've, I'm having and that's it must be so relevant to you and I thought we had a relationship together I mean whatever happens with them you know you're still my son it's almost like a second best thing like 
this guy's attraction to the family was the kids. It was Mia's character who's really smart and Josh's character who's, you know, really good athlete. But ultimately what happened when Julianne's character started working with Mark's is that, you know, Mark's character kind of fell in love or with some infatuation sense with, um, you know, in, with Julianne's character. So that led to this stirring of the pot, which is definitely interesting, you know, I'm sure for, you know, the writing of that. But when Josh doesn't give in to that moment, knowing that he can't, Josh could still maintain a relationship if he wanted with his biological father. I mean, that's after all the reason that he compelled his sister who was not as interested, not even close. She was going the other way and even acted, could have acted as a source of resistance. I mean, she could have kind of come clean to, uh, you know, Julianne and Annette's characters at the beginning saying that Josh wants to do this, but she didn't. She followed him into that, you know, into uh, Mark's character's restaurant and initiated this relationship and kind of followed suit with it a little bit less pronounced than Josh's character. But the point is that even all those moments that happened together between Josh's character and Mark's character, Josh's character still didn't give in. And I thought that was such a quote-unquote feminist decision by Lisa, like such a subtle thing that she did. Because it brought to light this theme that you don't see in nearly enough movies, which is the guy does not win at the end, necessarily. That's true with Mark's character's relationship to his, you know, biological son in the film, Josh's character. But it's also true in the sense that he doesn't get the girl at the end, and that's how life works sometimes, which I thought was cool and refreshing, and I hadn't seen that before. All right, so the final scene, this is the scene that really got me. This was like a precursor, and there were a few scenes after this that, you know, kind of set this in context, but I did not know where this was going, and I was really pleasantly surprised with how it ultimately went. So in the last act, or the last sort of scenes that comprise the final part of the final act, uh, we basically see this sort of, uh, not a resolution, but just the sense that this happened, we can't do anything to control it. That's the response of the entire family. So that includes, you know, Josh and Mia's characters and also Annette's, uh, Annette and Julianne's characters. But then they have to move, uh, you know, the daughter, Mia's character, to, to college. So they drive to Occidental and they move her in. And it's this very, you know, serious, kind of sad moment. They start crying. It's very obvious. I mean, she's not going across the country. She's going across the state. She can come every weekend if she wanted to. But it's the, it's the... Um, the idea that this woman, this young woman who has so much potential, she's a national merit scholar, uh, she can do whatever she wants, and she's really interested in science. She has all these aspirations, but uh, it's the fact that she was so well-parented and so well-guided by these sort of complementary, you know, women that kind of... They really served their purpose in terms of parenting her uh, with perfection. It was it's quite incredible, and she still maintained this open-minded disposition, but she also had the the sense of family and the the longing for that. That kind of developed, I think, a little bit more after she met Mark's character initially, but then it certainly did with regard to her relationship with Annette and Julianne's characters. But the final scene, so she's gone off to college. She uh, sees her parents and also Josh, uh, his character, leave in, I think they had, it was some sort of minivan or like an SUV situation, and they're driving off, and <laughs> Josh's character's in the back seat, and uh, Julianne and Annette's characters are, you know, in the front, 
um, one of them is sitting shotgun, the other one is driving, and um, and it's uh, in the car. It's it's a really you know serious moment. They've just dropped off their only daughter to college, and uh, Josh's character, who has been named um, you know Laser, which is an awesome name. So good on you, Lisa and Stuart Bloomberg, who you know wrote this. But he says that uh, you know his his parents shouldn't break up because they're too old, and uh, that got me uh, because I didn't know that was the end. And right after that, uh, this song plays. It's uh, the Youth by MGMT, and I I remember listening to that and also thinking about because music and film is it's like my whole thing. It's the only real talent I have I think the first part uh the opening sequence I think laser is like skating or whatever and he's being pulled by his um his friend who's this super erratic guy likely going through his own issues he has some you know weird boundary issues with his father who doesn't care if he kind of screws off all day I guess it's the summer so maybe you know maybe it is okay but um I just remember that song that was playing at the beginning was, I think it was from Vampire Weekend's Contra album. Vampire Weekend, you know, shout out to them, another band, you know, that has really resonated with me that was founded at Columbia. So way to go, Columbia. So anyway, it was that that last scene and the one that I, I referenced before that that really <laughs> informed me about how women may think in certain situations, how they must feel in certain you know times in their life and uh it really gave me something that ending when i watched it and i saw the credits to the youth i didn't necessarily feel um incredible about everything it was it was not one of those like feel good moments it totally caught me by surprise and maybe that's why it resonated with me but nonetheless it told me about the relationships that women have with each other, with men, with their kids, with their parents, with their family members. I thought it was really interesting and it's definitely influenced the way that I think about writing in related subject matter. So kudos to the creators of that film. All right, let's move on to the next one. So number four, which is the same as number one in terms of its value to me, is Rachel Getting Married. So I I think I had seen this film just before I saw Kids Are Right. There was this time in my life when I was in high school, but I think it, it might have been summer or maybe early fall, and I watched a handful of films, and they've really shaped my, um, I wouldn't say my interest in filmmaking. It was really strong at that point. We're talking about, you know, early in high school, uh, but what it did do was reinforce the interest. So I remember seeing Rachel getting married with, um, you know, a few other films that kind of synergistically work together to reinforce the interest collectively that I have and had a film. So this uh, this film, Rachel Getting Married, was directed by one of the finest directors that have ever graced the presence of the world and especially, you know, America, uh, and that's Jonathan Demme. So when you think about him, I think most people think about Silence of the Lambs. When I think about him, I think about this film. Because as someone that can do anything, and I, Demi is definitely in that category. He's a true, the truest auteur that, you know, can exist in the world. He chose to make this, this very sort of cinema verite style of, of film, which 
stemmed from Jenny Lumet, you know, Lumet's uh, script. And he did it with such conviction that it felt like I was there. It felt like I was at Rachel's wedding, but it also felt like I was at all the sort of upheaval times and instances that occurred before that point. So one of the first scenes in the film, like we're still before the, you know, the big conflict that happens in the first act. We're kind of just setting up the story still, but she has to get drug tested as a condition of her, you know, being allowed to go to this wedding and take time away from rehab. And uh, the first thing right off the bat, she says, and she's late to her appointment. uh, She says, I'm here to pee in a cup. This is uh, Kim right just to clarify so this is rachel's sister so she's coming here to you know to town to to basically go to her wedding and look i haven't talked to a lot of people about this film specifically but i'm sure that that moment resonated for many of them that that watched the film for me i didn't necessarily like that moment i thought it was too it wasn't that it was too crass but it was that it was it was almost felt like it was trying too hard just in how it tried to portray Anne's character as as crass or whatever it, it didn't it didn't feel good when I was watching it I mean who cares right I'm just I'm watching it it's not like I had anything to do with making it but the point is that that scene was not it didn't obviously deter me from the film it's just it's something that almost helped in terms of how I feel about it now but the scene that really got me in that one that resonated with me enough to you know place this here is that um that scene in which Rachel's character, so that's Rosemary DeWitt is playing that one, uh, and Sydney, who's her, you know, fiance, are basically having this sort of toe-to-toe fight. It's a good fight. It's a playful fight with Bill Irwin, who plays Kim and Rachel's father. Um, basically, they're trying to figure out who can load the dishwasher the quickest. So, uh, you know, people are taking different turns. I think Sydney takes the first turn and he does pretty decently, but Bill wants to sort of size him up a little bit. So they unload the dishwasher and Bill says, you know, you, you, you seem like a good guy, but you don't know anything about loading a dishwasher, right? So he starts loading it himself and they're being timed and Bill is just smoking him. I mean, he, he has done so much better. He's a real efficiency guru with, you know, loading the dishwasher. I mean, that's a sentiment that he's really made clear through this. And he actually has more room left for more dishes. So he asks the family and, and the people that are around to give him to start feeding him more dishes. And Kim's Kim goes to the cabinet and she pulls out a plate and it says Ethan on it. So this is uh this was a member of the family that, you know, she feels and it's kind of unclear in terms of the degree to which this actually was the case, but she feels really responsible for his death. She was, you know, on drugs. She had a lot of issues. And um, ultimately, I think drowning was was the cause of death. But anyway, he she brings this plate. And in doing so, she basically points to a memory that acts as a scab on Bill Irwin and, and the rest of the family that, you know, her intention was not to pull it off, but the action actually rips it off. When I was watching that, I thought, man, what a what a bold move to have the protagonist. I mean, is the protagonist Kim or is it Rachel? I mean, Rachel is in the title, but I think it's really a Kim's film, right? So to have Kim being politically incorrect in terms of what she's done, uh, 
to a really exaggerated sense. I mean, she's basically, it's the opposite of peeling back an onion. It's almost like the onion was, you know, getting peeled back and it has its layers again, almost like a snake after it's shed its skin and new skin comes in. But then she's ripped it off, even though she didn't want to do that. I thought it was a really bold move for, um, you know, from Jenny Lumet's side, who, as we mentioned, is the writer and also from Demi. It's not something that I'd seen before. The thing that took this to another level, and I think this was after this scene, I, th I think it was quite a bit after, which is the actual wedding. And I thought it was really unique to, that they had this very, you know, traditional sort of Indian style um, wedding, even though they're not that's not their culture. It, it was just really interesting to see everyone in saris and uh, the traditional gear. But at that event or one of the wedding events, uh, you kind of see Deborah Winger's character and she's, she's become like almost a corporate person now. She's, you know, she's gotten remarried and she's, you know, brought him to the wedding as well. But um, it's almost like she's become a little bit more type A in terms of her career. And that's probably coming out of the fallout after, you know, her, sort of kids I guess issues is the right word I mean it's not a it's not good you know it's not the right sort of setting to judge even for a character I feel that sensitive even for someone that's fictional because it's it's yet another thing that's easy to trivialize but probably shouldn't but anyway this is when Deborah's character sees Kim for the first time in a while uh you know it, they have definitely had a distant relationship in the past. And uh, Kim's smoking a cigarette inside. And uh, Deborah's character points to that. And she asks her, like, are you allowed to smoke in here? Right off the bat, just kind of under the bus. Like, the implication of that. It just, it got me. Like, even after Kim has done work on herself. And, you know, she fine she's not super pc or whatever she's a little bit upfront about you know some of her struggles which makes it interesting even after that point even after the distance even after deborah's character's role becomes more white collar more type a she still comments on the fact that she's smoking she can't get past the issues or the mistakes that kim's character is making man did that get me <laughs> the final scene that that got me. I mean, really this whole thing, uh, but why it's on the list is uh, towards the end, this is probably, I would say, probably the middle of the, the third act. We're getting close to the end here. And Kim has just had this, she had this falling out, this re-falling out with her mom. And she's, you know, driving this car. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's obviously like, people are really sensitive about that uh, because of what the accident that she had before. So she's thinking about that in her mind um, and she runs into a tree and um, it's one of those scenes. And then the next day she, you know, kind of discovers this, this, these issues that have, um, have occurred and, and she gets out of the car and she walks home and Rachel sees her and Rachel's getting married basically up to that minute. She's getting married in a few minutes and she's dressed and Kim has all these bruises. And what does Rachel do? Now, Rachel is a psychologist. So she could have said something, you know, in the realm of her field that either helped diffuse the situation or point to 
the mistake that Kim made so that it's not, you know, positively reinforced in the future. I mean, she knows what her struggles are, but she doesn't do that. She opens a bath and Kim goes in it and she cleans her hair and she puts a little bit of makeup on her. Not too much, just a little bit. And then she, she gets her dressed and they don't say a word. There's not a verbal exchange. It's all about what you're seeing them do in terms of their actions. That even though their relationship has been complicated, I mean, if you would ask anybody, mostly according to Kim's, you know, uh, issues or her actions or her intentions, that they still have this mutual understanding and it doesn't go away. And uh, the plate or the, you know, struggles or the death of her brother and, and, and Kim's role in that and the accident that Kim was just in after she talked to her mother, the car is totaled, but that doesn't matter because all that matters is Rachel and Kim love each other and you don't really need words to point to that. And that's cool. So that stuck out to me because it informed me about how women's relationships particularly the relationship of, of between sisters, um, you know, can be really strong and um, doesn't have to be verbal at times. And I, I wasn't aware of that before. So thank you to the creators of that film. All right, number three, uh, which is, again, as we know, like the other two that I've talked about, they're all tied with number one, uh, is Francis Ha. So this was a film directed by... Noah Baumbach, uh, written by him and also Greta Gerwig, who stars in the film. And um, yeah, I mean, I have to give a shout out to um, Baumbach, Noah, because he uh, his film Squid and the Whale is, is something that it's one of the few films that I actually own. Um, and I like watching it. I haven't revisited that one in a while, but uh, definitely a great New York film, uh, kind of set more in Park Slope in Brooklyn. Francis Ha is also actually set in New York. And I'll tell you a, a note about this film. Uh, I had seen it when it came out, I believe. Um, I think I saw it on, uh, I think it was playing on IFC or something. And I, I saw it a little bit, but I didn't see it again until actually a little bit more recently. Maybe, um, you know, four or five months ago, I saw it when I was in St. Louis. And I didn't know that I was going to be moving to New York at that point. But I think the black and white kind of pulled me in. And also uh, any film that has... A protagonist that sort of fits the structure of someone that knows what they want to do and knows what they're good at, knows what talents they have, but is coming up, but is facing all these obstacles and she doesn't know why. I think it's really interesting. You have to put that in a film. So here you have this dancer. She's in her late 20s and she's, you know, she's living in New York. She's moving across towns like that, like at the drop of a hat, because she has to for like rent reasons based on how her career is going, her relationships with her friends, her best friend, etc. And I, when I saw it, I really didn't like it. And I don't mean to say that I didn't like the film because it's on this list. That means that it resonated with me and I, it means that I'd feel something for that film. But when I watched it, Maybe it was just a relatability, like knowing what you want to do, knowing what you're good at, uh, but feeling limited in a sense by what others think of you. 
and floating around town, moving a lot, which is obviously something that I can relate to, and just not hitting it, but knowing that you you should have hit it at this point. And how do you respond to that? So the one thing that I got from this, the reason why this is what drew me in and put it on this and ultimately I put it on this list is when she finds out I believe she's found out at this point that her best friend Sophie has basically left her job and she's getting really close with this guy I think they're at this point they're either engaged or really close to that point and she is not feeling very good about herself her dance um, job is kind of uh, it's not going well either so what does she do? She takes out some of her credit cards and she funds a trip to Paris. And she goes there to basically reflect about her life, what's happened, and the situation that she's in. And when she gets back, she continues to be treated like an outsider, which is how she's been treated throughout this time. But there's a there's a nonchalance-ness that she's exuding, which I really found in- interesting and intriguing. Another another reason why this is here is because of a relationship with her best friend, her former best friend, who's I guess is always her best friend in a way, Sophie. So when she returns from Paris, um, you know, Sophie is not. She's almost in the same situation that Frances was in before she left. So she's not having a great time. She's drinking a lot. They're at some master uh, event. Frances is kind of working the um, the the or whatever she's she's waiting tables really and sophie's there you know as an attendee and at that point sophie vents she vents about her relationship and she vents about her job and she's exuding this longing for francis even though before all of these events occurred in both of their lives you know and they were super um they were super tight at one time but they lost touch and although francis always remembered that Sophie didn't become conscious of it. So everyone was treating Sophie like a, you know, uh, everyone was treating Francis rather like an outsider. But when Sophie realizes what it means to be an outsider, when her stuff isn't going well, and Francis has to console her, that's what got me. That's why it's on this list. Because that gave me a, a view into how friends, girls that are friends with each other, how do they react? How does that relationship, which they see as a significant relationship with each other, how does that manifest over obstacles? I think that's what good writing is. So as someone that understands the value of tight-knit friends, I mean, I definitely grew up with with friends that I was really close to, that I hung out with, you know, every weekend. We didn't go to the same school, so, you know, you hang out every weekend and, and, and really frequently, you're always talking to each other. I understand what it means to have that sense of uh, you know, relationship, but I also know what it means to lose it. You know, I've lost touch with those friends. I mean, we're, we're brothers. We're going to be for the rest of our lives, I guess, but we don't, we don't keep in touch. And I think this film sort of, after watching this film, I kind of think about what it would mean to actually reach back out to them. And that's powerful. That's a powerful film. That's how looking at relationships among women can actually impact my own relationship with my male friends. So that's why it's on this list. All right, next film. Uh, so this would be number two, right? 
Number two, uh, but again, tied with number one. So that is Love and Basketball by Gina Prince Bythewood. She's the director. Um, she also wrote it, so she knows a lot about this film. So sports is a topic really near and dear to my heart. I grew up with sports. I played basketball my whole life. I play all the time. Uh, I'm actually really fortunate because at Columbia Medical Center, where I'm studying now, uh, downstairs, we have like this indoor basketball court it's not as big but it's still a full court and we play I play there all the time it's really great uh, so really thankful for that so I guess this uh, the question here at the beginning of this film it's split up into not three acts per se but really four quarters is how the director has sort of arranged this visually and we start out seeing the sport of basketball seeing the game of basketball and seeing how that transforms these two individual lives. So essentially, um, I'm not going to go through you know the, the plot or whatever. I want you to watch this film if you haven't seen it because it truly is incredible. But the, um, the main things that stuck out to me were uh, Sana's character and how strong she was. So she basically is growing up next door to... Omar Epps' character, who uh, is the son, the progeny of a, a basketball player, professional player. I think he played for the Lakers, which I despise. I'm totally Celtics all the way. We just lost in the finals, unfortunately. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is that he's grown up with basketball, right? His character has. His father wants him to follow in his footsteps, uh, probably based on his interests. Um, if he had his druthers, maybe he would prefer that he pursue something else. But he is pursuing basketball. That's definitely his life. He knows that very early on. Whereas Sana's character, she wants that. She definitely wants to be in the WNBA, but her family doesn't necessarily want that for her. Her mother, more so, is very realistic, not in terms of her talent. That's not an issue. The issue, according to her, is that it's not very womanly. At least that's the perception that Sana has of her mother in terms of her response to whether you know she can make it as a basketball player. And I thought that concept was really interesting. I mean, what does it mean to be a woman? And what does it mean to exude qualities that are quote-unquote womanly? How does that differ from men's qualities? If a girl plays basketball and she's really good at it, can she be accepted by men and women? Whereas the traditional norm that other films potentially have explored about this subject as can't she be accepted by the men in this case it's not the men that aren't accepting her it's her own mother so there are a few scenes in this one that, that really jump out at me let me just give you you know quick uh, overview about that why it's here why it's on this list sirens are going off that's fine it's new york city so one of the scenes is um sana is trying out for a scout she's playing in a high school game but there are college scouts at that game. I think there's someone from USC where she ultimately, you know, ends up playing. But obviously there's uncertainty before that moment actually happens. And she doesn't perform. She performs well in a portion of the game. But then towards the end, um, she definitely feels res responsible for the loss. And it was the championship game. Um, so the scouts are there. Her father is there. Her sister is there. And they can only do what they can do. But what I what resonated for me from that moment is how hard she was on herself. I mean, she sits on the bench. There's only a few seconds left. She knows that they're losing the game. And she takes her jersey and she puts it over her head to sort of cover her tears. And I'd seen men do that in other 
you know, sports themed films, but I'd never seen a woman do that. And that really touched me in that moment. What Sanaa may or may not have realized then, or even now is that she impacted so many women that were young girls that weren't necessarily encouraged to be professional athletes, but seeing how hard she took that made them see that this game can affect you psychologically and it doesn't care about your gender, your location, or how your parents feel about you. And that's really interesting. Another moment uh, that I found really impactful, again, we're kind of, uh, this is related to Sanaa's character. She's going overseas. I think she goes to Spain. She goes uh, to Europe to play basketball. This is before I think the, M- the WNBA was even established based on the chronology of the film. And she plays in the championship. Uh, and she ultimately, before she even plays, she's uh, coming out of the locker room and she sees one of her former teammates at USC where she played in college. She's playing the opposing team. So we know at the beginning of this that one of them is going to win, one of them, the other one is going to lose. All we see of the game is the tip-off. The next scene that we see, they're at a restaurant, um, you know, very sophisticated but cool, sort of laid-back Latin vibe. And um, they're just sitting there. And Sanaa's trophy, she's, we basically see that she's won the game, her team has, and she has the trophy, which means she was likely the most valuable player. And she has the trophy sitting on the table, and her former teammate sees that, and she gives this sense that, uh, like, who do you think you are, but in a playful manner, that leads Sanaa to kind of put down the trophy. And I thought that was really interesting, because up to that point, I had only seen that dynamic with, you know, between men. I'd never seen that competitiveness, that rivalry, but a pleasant rivalry where you're pushing the other person to become better at what they do. Uh, I'd never seen that theme explored in the, the subject matter of women. And I thought it was really interesting. It really touched me. I'll tell you the final piece of this that resonated with me. So I, um, I remember seeing towards the end this is like definitely the third act probably middle middle end of the third act and um we see that omar's character uh who did get to the nba he played for the lakers uh i think his father actually played for the clippers so he's he's playing in a different team but anyway he's playing on the lakers and he's been battling these injuries and he hasn't been playing to his full potential and um it's not looking great he's not sure if he's gonna be you know uh um able to continue playing in this league but basically he's with someone else uh and that doesn't happen because he realizes and Sanaa realizes that they love each other uh and look the audience wants them to end up together so that's you know that's kind of um I think that works uh whether or not the prediction was the case it's interesting but the thing that really got me about this is the end um it's the final scene of the film so we see uh, we see the Staples Center where where the Lakers used to play, and we see um, Sana playing basketball. She's playing in the league. She's in the WNBA, and cheering for her is Omar's character on the bench or on the, in the stands rather, and he's holding uh, their son, who's an infant, on his lap, and he did this thing. This is how I remembered it, that he held his son's hands together as if to make him like clap for his mother. And that 
that really touched me. Because you have this guy who was growing up in this film, thinking about his own career, wanting to to outdo his father, who also played in the NBA, but then realizing, you know, that he's having these injuries and, and whatever, it's not looking great. But at that point when they patch up, he's on the he's in the stands cheering for his at that point likely his wife, right? How cool is that? So the roles are reversed. But in turn, that shows how similar um, men and women are. So that's what that film did for me. All right, let's move to the next one. So this is also, I guess this is technically number one, but again, it's, it's really tied with the other four films that I've talked about today in terms of their impact to showing me um, how it feels to be a woman, whatever I can understand about that concept. You know, um, not being a woman. And that film is Sunshine Cleaning, which is directed by Christine Jeffs, and it was written by Megan Hawley. This was another film that I think I saw when I was a little bit younger, uh, probably on IFC or something, but I didn't, I didn't really think about it because I'd only, it was one of those films that I'd seen only in a few parts. I couldn't really contextualize what it, what it means. That was my mom calling me. So uh, this film, again, like I didn't give it its due, its proper due at the beginning, but you know, when I saw it, I think it came out in 2008. I saw it really recently again. Uh, I, I saw it when I was in Nevada last time. And I was in a period of quite a bit of uncertainty. I think this is around the time of my birthday last year. So probably August of, you know, 21. And I remember seeing it. And it just, it didn't make me forget or lose sight of, you know, whatever uncertainty I was going through at the time. But what it did do was bring to light these two characters and the dynamic that they had with each other again like both sisters so you have you know a single mother that is trying to get to the next point uh and you have her sister who's kind of the opposite like you know doesn't have any drive and doesn't really want to do anything at least that's what it looks like on the surface i'll tell you what what about this film really got me a few things so one one thing that starts to develop when Rose uh, starts this cleaning business with a sister, but she's really, it's her impetus to start it, is she starts this acquaintance, which turns into a relationship with um, the uh, this character Winston, who Clifton Collins Jr. plays, who's an incredible, incredible actor. And he plays a guy who has lost his arm. I can't remember if we ever came to grips in the film of how that happened. The point is that, you know, he has one arm. A lot of people that come into his life, uh, his character's life, probably trivialize him like that. Like he owns a hardware store. So people come in, they either see it, they acknowledge it or they don't, depending on their personality. They buy whatever they need to get, they leave. It's like when I bought that hypothetical candy bar. I think it was a Kit Kat from that guy or that woman that works behind the counter at the store. But he's giving her, Rose, these insights into how to optimize her cleaning business. He's giving her all these tools and these these tricks. He also owns a store that is going to supply a lot of the equipment that she needs to, again, get to the next level. So she's started this business. It's up and running. And uh, at one point, she realizes that uh, her friend's baby shower is coming up. Like she comes, she has this weird encounter with her. I think it was at a gas station or something. She's getting a Slurpee or whatever. And her friend is like more, uh, her perception is that she's kind of making it or she has. 
Uh, whereas she's, again, like Rose is trying to get to the next point. So in an abrupt situation, Rose has this baby shower she realizes she has to get to. And, um, you know, her father and uh, her sister are not going to be able to take care of her kid for the time being. So what does she do? She takes her kid, Oscar, to the hardware store and she asks Winston to see him, uh, to, to not just see him, but to, um, you know, babysit him, essentially. So here you have this woman and she's considered she's attractive. The, you know, Winston considers her to be. He likes her and he wants to make a good impression. And he also needs to convey that he cares about her child as well in order for their relationship to work. But at the same time, she doesn't know him that well. And now she's dropping off her kid, you know, so that uh, she can go to her party. So when I first saw that, it struck me off a little bit. I didn't like that. I didn't like that about her character. But uh, I don't know, after a few days or after some time, I, I thought about that scene. Uh, I also saw it in relation to the, you know, to how the story evolved. And I thought, wow, like she had so much trust in someone that she didn't know that she allowed him to look after her kid whom she loves. That's one aspect of it. The, the other part of it is that Winston, his character, has probably been treated by women as an outsider to a certain degree, meaning they don't necessarily treat him like they would treat other men that were strange to them at first. They would probably, if they're in the hardware store, you know, getting something, either sympathize with you know, his arm thing or not acknowledge it, but still stare at him. Uh, out of the corner of their eyes. So he probably feels that he's not being treated authentically. But when Rose drops her son Oscar off to this guy, this guy's, you know, hardware store that she doesn't really even know that well. I mean, how must he feel that she's kind of dropping him off so she can do what she needs to do probably makes him feel normal in a strange way. And consequently, like less of an outsider and more accepted by someone that wants to have a romantic relationship with him. That's the part that I found interesting. At the end of the film, she, you know, Rose, I mean, she's gone through all these different obstacles, as is her sister, in operating this business and making it something real. But now she has a real van, she has real equipment, she has all the certifications she needs, and she walks into, you know, a motel type of room with her father and they place they're, they're clad in these ha uh, hazmat suits and they place the top and they walk in and it's it's like they're starting a new chapter so she's the one that willed the whole family to sort of follow suit in her ambition and that's what makes her special her character and also the result that as i was able to you know get exposed to by the creators of the film so to them, if you're listening, I thank you for that. And there you have it. Those are the five films that shaped my understanding of what it may or may not feel like to be a woman in this world. And the decision today that we all saw, that we all witnessed, is what led me to navigate this exploration of these films and how they shaped me. So, you know, when we discussed what it means to be affected by something and how something today 
can lead to a different action tomorrow. I guess that's what I meant. Because this is my view of history. But I don't think this is it. So whether film is your medium or it's not, you have a different one. Using that engagement with the material to shape how people view women and women's issues, I think is a responsibility that, you know, all creators should harbor. Because the situation and the climate isn't going to improve until we make it improve. So whatever it is that you do, I hope that when you create, you're conscious about the impact that women have made in our society and that you're open to realizing what it really means to live and breathe as a woman and a human being. At least that was my goal. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. Really was a pleasure to be with you today.